0: to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode I'm talking to Dave Hills, the senior and only geoscientist for Enhanced Energy. He has been instrumental in the preparation of Alberta's first large-scale CO2 enhanced oil recovery project that's kicking off in the Leduc-Clive field in central Alberta. We'll be talking about Dave Hills' technical article titled CO2-enhanced oil recovery in Alberta. Some highlights include discussing why the Leduc and Nisky formations are ideal reservoirs for carbon storage and increased oil recovery. We're rocking out today with Dave Hills. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi Dave and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hello Maureen, Good. great to be here.
0: So carbon dioxide, also known as CO2, it's a waste gas that mixes with clear air to form an invisible layer around the earth which keeps the heat inside. This is causing global warming and methods to reduce carbon emissions are being sought after. So one method of reducing the carbon emissions is by capturing it and storing it in existing geological reservoirs. So what do you see in the Leduc and Nisku Formations that make them ideal candidates for this carbon storage?
1: That's a great question. One of the wonderful things about these formations is that when they were first discovered, they were groundbreaking in their day. They, uh, they, They produced some of the most productive wells ever seen to that type. And it and it really projected uh, Canada's oil and gas business, you know, through the roof during the nineteen forties, on you know late forties, early fifties. After that, monumentous Leduc number one well, and that really kind of shows what these formations are about. They're massive at volume, they're very permeable, and basically single wells can have access to a large volume of rock you know a large volume of of fluids and that's what happened with these with these early wells in the duke that we have some of the the highest producing wells in the basin were able to produce massive volumes of oil that's because of the nature of the the duke and the miscue and these kind of buggy dolomitized carbonates that we have in this part of the well is that you know fluid can travel quite large distances into, into the whirlpool. Well, now we're 50, 60, 70 years on down the road, and we're we're talking about the opposite. Where where can you find a, a volume of rock where you can inject CO2 into and actually get the best bang for your buck? On top of that, we're looking at old oil reservoirs where we have um, some residual oil left in those systems that that CO2 can also access.
0: So it's a perfect way of explaining it. The more you can take out for oil, the more you can put in for CO2. So it's a good, good reservoir just because of the large volume. So you started to touch on there that the CO2 is mixing with oil that is left on the edges of the reservoirs. So the mm-hmm. CO2 is miscible with oil, and this means that it makes the oil less viscous, the volume increases, surface tension changes. And this isn't the first time that enhanced oil recovery is being used. You mentioned that it's been used in the Permian Basin for 45 years. So do you yeah. know a little bit about some of these historic projects?
1: The idea of injecting CO2, yes, as we um, as mentioned that in that article, Um, has been around for over 40 years in in the Permian Basin. I mean, the origin of it is is basically understanding that CO2 and oil are miscible under high pressures that you find in reservoirs. And I I guess kind of that early chemistry just showed that if you add CO2 into, into a fluid like oil, it would expand, the viscosity would drop. In the US back in the day, it was where can we find fluids that are cheap enough to get in large volumes that we can inject into these reservoirs. And the U.S. is kind of uh, has its own sources of CO2. It has uh, carbonate domes in Arizona and Colorado um, where you get large baked volumes of rock and that deep baking that's happened has actually created pretty much pure CO2 streams, uh, yeah. reservoirs in, uh, trapped in these uh, underground domes. And it's from those natural co2 streams that they've drilled they've uh, transported it from those domes in out to the east towards the west the permian basin and that's that fluid that they're injecting into into those uh, fields there so i think the original idea of it was really you know kind of a monetary one you can use other hydrocarbons to do this but that costs an awful lot of money but Back over here, we, we have a natural dome of CO2 that we, can, uh, that we can drill, transport, and come across. And that's where it starts. Now, of course, we don't have that natural CO2 dome around here or you know, anywhere in Canada. But what we do have is a lot of waste gas of CO2 from different um, anthropogenic sources that we can, that we can capture and use that instead. It was, I think, basically a a financial decision early on, but it's been developed. It's uh, certainly no science experiment. This has been an industry in in the Permian Basin for for a huge long time.
0: It's interesting to think that 45 years ago, they actually drilled for CO2 and wanted to produce it, whereas now it's viewed as a waste and very different technologies are utilized to turn it into something productive. So it shows you the economics and the provability of why you would put CO2 down in the formation. You know, there's probably the monitoring in place to keep track of it. What kind of things in the reservoir do you need to look for? Like, do you need to have some seals? Does it need to be stratigraphically layered? What are the key surrounded by shale, like a reef?
1: That's right. So to inject CO2 into any reservoir in, in Canada, we have to follow some very, very strict guidelines as to where it goes, how deep it is. For instance, it has to be over a thousand meters. Mm-hmm. And the reservoir is very, very carefully chosen um, for both its geological containment and its, you know, the well bore containment around it. So for the geology containment, which is what I'm more or less in charge of, uh, we're looking at a couple of things. You know, straight off the bat, obviously it's the volume, you know, a large reservoir where you can actually in, inject into mm-hmm. that has good permeability and reasonable porosity. That's the do or the But for the containment side of it, the most primary, the primary most important thing is the cap rock, the seal, and that's the tight rock. That stops that CO2 from moving out of that formation, out of that field, into anything laterally or vertically. And for the for the uh, Leduc, directly above the Leduc at Clive, we have the Iriton, which is a fairly uh, which is a tight carbonate, kind of almost a shale, but not quite. That's a good seal because we know it's a good seal because it's held an Oil reservoir underneath it for probably you know tens of millions of years. It's held you know tens of meters of oil and gas below it in the Duke reservoir for uh, geological timescales. That's a great uh, seal, but above that is an even better one on top of the Nisquy. Uh, we have the NISCU anhydrites and the Wobbermann anhydrites and Kalmar shale. And that's just a series of layered anhydrites and shales. Now, anhydrite is an interesting rock because under those type of pressures and temperature regimes that we see down there, fractures tend to get sealed up. So a fracture that can happen in an anhydrite through tectonic events early in its geological history, will be eventually sealed up because the, front, the anhydride itself is kind of mobile. It has a duct type, ductility to it. That's where we can you know, safely say that you know, none of this CO2 that we're injecting down there will be travelling you know, upwards from those points because we're... And that's also a good reason to look at old oil fields. Of course, oil's there because there's a trap. There are other places where we can put CO2 and they have other issues. But for an oil field, the the geological risk is is essentially very, very, very low because we already know that that geology has a proven track record of holding these lighter fluids than water.
0: Exactly. So it's not even just modern day monitoring that you need to look at, just the historic, it's done it before, it can do it again. Methodology works quite well here. So in some of the historic oil fields, you do have gas caps above the oil. How would you expect a gas cap to react in a CO2 recovery?
1: That's a good question. Again, it's uh, generally in these fields, we've produced the gas, we've produced the oil. There's residual gas though. Mm-hmm. Um, residual gas isn't the best thing for uh for miscibility between oil and uh, co2 it kind of um it dilutes that co2 so having uh, a field with a large gas cap isn't always the most uh economic isn't the best thing for the miscibility between the oil and the co2 you want to try to avoid that a little bit but again you know the amount of actual CO, uh, gas that we have up in some of these fields has been drained off. It's, they've been produced away. There's a little bit of residual in there, uh, but it doesn't t- change the um, the chemistry or the, the mechanics of what's going to go down there in this case.
0: Speaking of Clive, that's located in central Alberta, and it's already gone through the primary recovery, some secondary water flood, and this is the tertiary recovery so how much do you expect this to increase recovery by?
1: Um, every field's different and every field is kind of dictated by the way that we inject, the way that we approach the CO2 EOR. Usually for tribe, and I'm going to be quite uh, you know, regional around here to include other fields, is like you... Can produce up to you know, 50% of the oil that's there, roughly with the carbonate. And you may expect to see almost half of that again to be recovered in this tertiary phase. It's pretty much half of what's there. There's a very, very rough indicator for, for any type of carbonate, CO2, EOR, or oil flood. And that'll be the same for Weyburn and for the Permian Basin examples as well. They all kind of follow that rough rule of thumb you know when we do our simulation and we we kind of go through the process we individual fields will have a slightly higher idea about you know where where that number will eventually land but it will be you know they generally land around that point
0: that's a huge volume one of the things that i know you've done a lot of work on is the geological models to feed into the simulation models and really see the um where the flow is predicted to go what are some of the porosity, permeability, fractures? How do you think they would affect the flow of the CO two based on the models you've done?
1: Well, if there's anything that keeps us up at, late at night is worrying about those small details of fractures and permeability barriers and and all of these things because it seems that small details can uh, can can change the character of an individual well quite quite drastically right so it's something that we're always looking at and you know as a geologist going going through the process of modeling the clive field that's one of my learnings is that small details really do matter one of the things we have in the in the workshop that i talk about is the clive tidal layer it's a layer quite close to the top of the formation that weren't really, we're really aware in the early days that it was a continuous thing going across the field. Uh, a combination of some very odd production characteristics over the years from some of the wells led us to look back at this layer of, of rock. You know, it's about four or five meters thick and it's about, you know, eight to ten meters below the top of the, the, the duke and really kind of re look at the, this thing that we seen the character of it. We just didn't know the significance. It turns out, you know, that locally this can be a barrier to to quick oil flow through the rock. It's not. It's not a, a layer. It's not impermeable by any means. But it is. It's a layer that has to be considered when you're designing your wells. When you're designing your flood, is to say, well, you know, CO two is 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 a fluid that can get anywhere, but you need to have that characterised very, very well in your models to truly understand that field. And that was one of the things. And there was many other examples of that where we said, you know, porous zones that we see here, um, generally are, you may not think that they link up to each other, but you know sometimes they do. And it's very important to have those mapped and characterised correctly because that can drastically change the look of a flood and how it reacts to, to injection.
0: So would you say it's almost the same then as when you're characterizing the reservoir initially, where you'd find some net pay intervals and different depositional faces and environments and map those and model those. But now you're doing it from an additional perspective where you can add the production data into it, which might highlight some key faces or different wells where there might be those barriers. You have more info you can put in because it's so old.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's great, and it's one of the things I think we as geologists are often overlooked because so often we're trained on kind of newish areas where we're, um, I mean, I certainly want wells that we were drilling were exploratory, right? They were the first wells in an area. Why am I going to look at production? That doesn't make any difference. But in this new world of EOR and you know going back to the actual oil that's still sort of stranded in so many of these oil reservoirs. We have another tool about which is this production history, and the production history is uh, has so much going for it that we can that can tell us the nature of some of this geology in between the wells. We look at a well, we look at a log or a core, even much, and that's three inches of of rock, a diameter, you know, a, a tiny pinprick of information that is in this massive volume of a, of a reservoir, and we're trying to decipher what's in between those pinpricks of information. Well, you know, we're good at seismic and using that type of thing, but another tool is production and you know understanding that production history, where the right well was flowing. what You can tell an awful lot when you get your production engineer and your geologist together, and you really deep, deep, deep dive into that data we've done that a couple of things a couple of times at events and every time it's it's been an eye-opener for me as a geologist to say well i uh, would never have guessed that of the rock but i absolutely believe it because the production history is telling me that is the case
0: so it sounds like you might be a little bit of a of a splitter and have quite a complex model with lots of different intervals in it. So, just to put it in context, how thick is the, the Leduc in the area and how many layers would you have?
1: Oh, well, uh, well the Leduc is um, 250 meters thick, but we don't model, model that. Uh, the uh, the climb itself is about 30 meters thick. And when we're modeling, one of the things that you have is uh, your own model for your own purposes and you have the model. For your simulation engineer. Uh, the simulation engineer's got to do an awful lot of calculations on every cell in that model so you, you don't want to swamp in with too much data. My own model will have you know a, a quarter you know, 25 centimeter resolution vertically, 20 meter lateral uh, cells. and you always upgrade that for your simulation engineer. But I would like to make sure that I get the most out of my uh, computer power and have as many cells as possible, because it gives a prettier picture as well. When you show those, you know, those modern pictures, having all those great big blocks going across like it's some great big Lego model is not very nice. So I, I like it. I like my models fine.
0: <laughs> so in order to get the CO2 to the Clive oil field, it's being transported down the Alberta carbon trunk line. And this was developed specifically for this uh, CO2-enhanced oil recovery. If the pipeline was operating at its capacity, which I believe is 40,000 tons per day, would it source only Clive or would would it be able to source other oil fields in the area?
1: The purpose of the ACTL was to supply a large industry of injection throughout um, Alberta coming straight from the industrial heartland, which is, you know, uh, Fort Saskatchewan, an area. So the, the current um, volume of, uh, that we're getting from the um, Northwest Redwater plant and the next door, the nutrient plant, is only a fraction of the overall total volume that that line can take. The plan will always be to have newer sources come in and newer sinks go out uh, throughout the, the area. And that, that pipeline will become part of the backbone of a network that links heavy industry to the oil fields throughout Alberta. And, you know, this is why one of the points of the ACTL, it is partly government funded by the province and uh, by the federal government. And the reasons for that was to, you know, this isn't just for enhanced energy and, and, and NWR and nutrient. It's for the industry as a whole, as an open pipeline that anybody can inject into and anybody can produce from.
0: It's very smartly located as well. It kind of goes along the Leduc Reef trend, right? So it's convenient for the technology yes. we need.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and that was... That was part of the plan. You know, Clive, if you look on the map on the Bashore Reef Trend, uh, you've got the Home vein Rimby Reef Trend to the north of there. There's lots going around and there's lots in, you know, in shallower rocks around there as well. So the goal there was really just to get us to a central point where from there you can start branching out.
0: So it was June 2020, that ACTL and Enhance Energy did the first injection at Clive. What's coming up next for you?
1: The first production at Clive, I'm hoping. (laughs) So, yes, I mean, we have just drilled our production wells, so we're right now in the in the uh final stages of completion and uh getting those ready for production and that will mean Clive is you know up and running for at uh, its its design capacity, so this is a very exciting time for us. Clive is our first field, you know no doubt that over the years that we'll be injecting into Clive will be expanding throughout to the north and south. And then there will be other fields down the road that will, will hopefully rejuvenate and uh, bring back to life like we have done with this old field.
0: It's very exciting. The environmental benefits of CO2 EOR are very significant. Once fully operating, the Alberta carbon trunk line will reduce 14.6 million tonnes of CO2 emission per year which is equivalent of taking 2.6 million cars off the road. Um, that's a quote from your Reservoir paper here. So this is a very exciting opportunity to be involved in. What have some of the highlights been for you?
1: Just the idea of being part of something that is so game-changing, to be an, you know on a company that making these strides so early on in Alberta and you know to be part of that, and to actually feel that the the skills I have as a geologist are a necessary portion of that task. You know um, that is probably the biggest you know feeling of well-being with that work that I had. I knew from the very beginning when I kind of stepped through the door and seven years ago that you know this was a big important project, and it was certainly worth you know sticking in there and striving through we remember we've been i've been here for seven years you know much of that time has been spent designing the program getting ready we weren't drilling much of that time you know much of the activity has only kind of come in the last couple of years uh since we got the actl built so you know there's been there's been a, a couple of ups and downs throughout that but really Anytime you kind of stop and think about what we're doing here and the overall effect, it you know, always gives me a, a great feeling of, uh, of well-being that I'm actually in the right place and the right job at the right time. That's luck as well, but it uh, certainly feels good.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine at the beginning it would have been a lot more research, a lot more looking at the world's cores, modelling, calculations, and now it's more operational. But there would have been a lot of geological work up front as well, I imagine. That's
1: right. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how much geological work still has to go into it when we get, you know, any surprises in the drilling and things like that. We need to go back into that geological work and kind of understand what we're we looking at. You know, if the, the drill is losing a little bit of mud, weight or you know that kind of thing. We need to see what's happening yeah, in, in the rock and you know, understand that permeability, understand all those things that's going on.
0: This was very interesting. I think that it's a trend setting for industry, and everyone's going to be very interested to keep an eye on the work you're doing. So, thank you very much for sharing it today. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Um, no, I just hope that this is the start of a, a little bit of a renaissance in carbonates. Uh, as I said, you know, at the beginning of this, that I think the reason why we're looking at carbonates for this type of work is because of the nature of the rocks themselves. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that a lot of these old reservoirs will see the light of day once again and that they could have a lifespan of you know decades ahead of them thanks to CO2 eor there's definitely uh you know we're sitting on the gold mine of these things they're out there the value is in it is in this process it won't happen overnight it will take a long time but i think we can see some some real industry return in, you know, a small but significant way back into Alberta. And that's what we're we're kind of hoping for over the next, you know, the next few years.
0: Thanks, Dave.
1: Thanks, Maureen.
0: Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stone consulting corp at outlook.com on behalf of everyone here i'm maureen stonehouse thanks for joining us until next time